If you do have your Bible, I would encourage you to just turn it to John chapter 20. Um, John chapter 20 is where we were last week. And I am going to likewise do that. Um, make sure I'm right here ready for that. So I know that Easter is past, um, but this week I wanted to dwell longer, at least one more week on the events of that momentous Sunday, and to draw from the well of what Jesus said and did on that first day of his full conquest over death. And um, so we're going to spend a little bit more time in Easter today. Um, so would you all pray with me as, uh, as I ask God for help and ask him to help you all as well? In fact, um, I would be really grateful if, um, could I ask um, Donna, would you mind praying for us that God would help me to honor his word and that God would do a work through the spirit in our hearts through his word today that he wants to do? If you're there, Donna Mercer. Are you there? I don't know if Don is still here, actually. Okay. Yeah, Donna looks like she dropped off. Um, maybe if Kim, would you mind praying for for um, for me and for us as we preach and hear God's word? Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. Lord, we just um, come to you and and we ask for your help. We can't hear you or see you or change or change others um, without your Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, I, I ask that you, our helper, would do a tremendous work in us right now, that you would open our ears and our eyes um, in a way that we can't do it by ourselves in our hearts. Lord, would you soften our hearts and prepare us to hear your very words. Lord, I pray that you would empower Albert and all that you have um, helped him to prepare. And um, that Lord, you would just bring uh, boldness and courage and a greater fear and love of you than anything else. And um, I just pray that you would uh, just bring your truth to our hearts, Lord, and change us. Change us, Lord. Help at the end of this that you would be greater and bigger in our hearts and that we would love you more. And that even the things that you will show us, you will show it to us in, in grace and even... I pray for gifts of conviction and repentance um, and that we would have just a stronger hope and trust in you as a result. So, Lord, we just invite your presence and your work. We pray that you would bless this time, your word, and we thank you and we love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes, Lord. Thank you so much, Kim. <coughs> I have a humble title for, uh, for this message this morning. Um, it's called Your Life in Five Verses. Your Life, Your Life in Five Verses. Um, that's my humble title. That's supposed to be a little ironic, like joke. But, but I, 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 I do want to say that this morning... Um, I think that in the five verses I'm going to show you, we really do see a great summary of the Christian life on earth. And so that's why I thought maybe a clever title would be Your Life in Five Verses. Um, I think that what John is going to show in this little narrative is that the whole aim of our existence is encapsulated in John 20, verses 19 through 20. Three. The whole aim of our existence is, encapul is encapsulated in John 20, 19 through 23. So I'm going to read those words, and, um, and then I'm going to try to pull out from those words why I think that our whole lives are summed up in these five verses and what we can draw from them. 
Okay, coming back to John, I'm going to read John 20, verses 19 through 23. John 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of the Lord. Again, I want to put it to you that I think in these five verses, we see a great summary of our Christian life on earth. And that's why, again, I'm calling this message, Your Whole Life in Five Verses. I think John is showing here that, that there are three it, it, you know, we can, we can divide them up into subsets, but I've kind of divided up into, into three uh, connected aims of our lives. And they, they go like this. First, to live in the peace, to live in the peace that we have with God through the wounds of Jesus. Secondly, to live in that peace so that we might share this message of peace with one another and the lost. And thirdly, to do all this by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's it. I submit that's a pretty good summary of our goal in life. And, and again, it's 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 not something that I think necessarily John meant to say, but I, I think it's right there for us to pull out. So I'm going to go through each of those um, headings, and I'm going to try to show you how I see this in the text, and hopefully <coughs> you will see how it's there in a way that will give you, I hope, by God's grace, through his power alone, nourishment this morning. So... The first uh, postulate I have, the first heading I have is this, to rest in the peace we have with God through Jesus' wounds. That's the first aim of our life, to rest in the peace we have with God through Jesus' wounds, to rest in the peace we have with God through Jesus' wounds. Coming back to the the evening of the first day here, verse 19, again, on the evening of that first day, John says in 19, this is Easter Sunday, the first day of the week, the doors are locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And Jesus comes and stands among them and says to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, John tells us, he shows them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. We, we looked at this passage again last week. This was the end of, we kind of smushed this into the back end of our passage last week, which was really more focused on Mary. But today I want to focus on Jesus' interactions here in the upper room with the disciples. And it starts here. Remember again, this is Easter Sunday. Earlier this morning was our message last week. God, Jesus had, had told Mary that he was alive and that he sent her the disciples to tell them the good news that he had risen. And they're huddled together. They're all locked up in the same room. After they hear this news, they're huddled together in fear. So whatever they heard from Mary, it, it didn't quite uh, get to the heart level. Fear was still capturing them. And John says it's for fear of the Jews. And remember, this isn't Jewish people in general. John's not saying we should all be afraid of the Jews. He's talking about the Jewish leaders in the context of their hostility to Jesus Christ. This is the religious elite of <coughs> the nation of Israel at that time. So, so we kind of get in their shoes a little bit here. Imagine being in like an underground church uh, a couple of years ago in, in Mosul or uh, under ISIS-controlled territory in Iraq or Syria when they had overrun those areas. And radical, militant jihadists are running the countryside. And you're a Christian in an underground church there. And they have been able to capture and murder uh, your pastor. And the rest of you are all hiding away. And you have no reason to think that 
your loyalty to Jesus Christ and your uh, your association with your pastor and each other will mean any a different fate for you. So you're looking at crucifixion just like he was. It was not a um, it was not a light thing for for someone to be uh, crucified. You know, the Jewish people couldn't just do that to Jesus, but the Romans had no problem doing it to thousands of Jewish people at the time. And so you have no reason to think that you or your brothers or sisters or if your family members are going to wind up on a cross just like your uh just like your your pastor might have a few days ago and so they're all huddled in fear and in their minds they're the next targets so the doors are locked we're told and that's the best they can do but they're doing that at least they're locking the doors and the tension in the room is fear and then suddenly in the midst of that tension jesus appears in their midst they've heard mary and now they're seeing him just as she said they should. He's right there. And do you see that John says the doors are locked? The inference here isn't that Jesus knocked on the door and they opened the door. The inference here is that Jesus appeared in the room through the wall. He simply appeared in their midst as he's going to do in another place uh, when he appears uh, to the folks um, on the road to Emmaus from from, Emmaus. when he's walking with them and suddenly discloses himself and then vanishes after he begins to break bread. So here Jesus is doing this uh, thing again, similar to what we saw earlier with Mary, where John and Peter saw that he had moved through the grave clothes without necessarily taking them off. He had just moved through them. And so he miraculously appears and he says, peace be with you. And they're overjoyed. And But you know what's interesting about this little segment here is I don't think that the disciples are overjoyed for the same reason that Jesus is saying, peace be with you to them. I think they're overjoyed because of his presence. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think they should be overjoyed. But, but you know, we should completely give them all the time in the world to celebrate and, and rejoice in seeing Jesus. We, we spoke last week about how traumatic and completely disorienting it must have been for them to see this man who walked on water, raised the dead, was transfigured before them into blinding light, to see him over three years of miracles and ministry, and then to see that just in a matter of hours turn, where he's horribly arrested, tried, whipped, murdered publicly in the worst possible way, and 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 what that could mean for them. And, and now for Jesus to show them, just as he said, even death can't keep him that his indestructible life is still going just as he said it would. And he's back with, with all his power and, and majesty and then some, you know, you, you just t- to have them see with their own eyes, this is our King. No one can keep him down. Nothing can stop this man. Our enemies have thrown everything they could throw at him. We saw him get killed. And just as he walked in the water, just as he calmed the sea, just as he raised the dead, just as he transfigured before us in blinding light, now he's here, standing in our midst after all of that. Like, nothing can stop this man, and, and he's on our side. And, I mean, how could you not rejoice, right? I would rejoice if I was, if I'd gone through all that and then see Jesus come back. It would mean so much hope for me and safety for me, and it would mean so much awe and wonder and worship for my heart to see him like that, right? But I don't think that's what Jesus is mainly trying to convey here. I do think it's in the backdrop. But the reason I'm saying that is is because, as we said last week, it's this whole dynamic here when he says peace to them for the first time in the whole book of John. And he shows them his wounds, and again, says peace to them. And the backdrop of the whole book of John, what Jesus has come to do and how he would come to do it, for him to come and say peace and show him his, show them his wounds. I think he's trying to say something much, much bigger than I'm indestructible. You know, Jesus, Jesus knows he's not going to stay with them to protect them physically. Jesus knows they are not going, most of them, to be protected physically. He knows he's sending them into the world, which will kill most of them. 
So I don't think physical safety is what Jesus is trying to primarily get them excited about. Though I ultimately, I do think our, our preservation, body, soul, and spirit eternally is in the backdrop of, of this. <laughs> but I think when Jesus says, peace be with you, and he shows them his wounds, he is echoing what Isaiah told us 2,700 years before our day today and 700 years before Jesus' day. When Isaiah says in 53, 4 through 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. These wounds that Jesus is showing his disciples are bringing peace to them. A peace that's bigger than their life on this earth. That will not often or always have peace. These wounds tell us that Jesus has paid for our iniquities. These wounds tell us that God has poured out the punishment that we deserve on Jesus, and he's not going to punish us because he's already punished Jesus for it. These wounds call out peace has been accomplished. Peace has been established through the wounds of Christ. When, when Jesus says in John 19.30, in the same book, the chapter before, it is finished. Remember, he's hanging on the cross, and he says, it is finished. Telestai, that's the Greek word. It means it's accomplished, it's paid, it's fulfilled. It's an accounting term that means the cost has been, the debt has been cleared. This is why Paul says in Romans 5, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And later in the same chapter, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have, past tense, present, existing, have, now, received reconciliation. Or in Ephesians 1.7, when Paul says, In him we have, it belongs to us right now, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus is saying, I have accomplished your peace with God. It is finished. The, the finished work of Jesus paying for all of our sins, I, and that word finished work, the conclusive work of Jesus having paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future, is perhaps the most important truth, I don't know a more important truth, for us in the Bible. It, it, it is the ground, the, the, the basis for what the Bible calls in other places, peace, reconciliation with God. Our, our peace with God that the Bible talks about, at least in this context and in Paul's context where we cited him in Romans 5, is not the kind of peace that we mean when we say we feel at peace. That can come from that, and we all want that. I want to feel at peace. You want to feel at peace. That's a good thing to want. But that's not the kind of peace that Isaiah is talking about when he says the punishments that brought us peace were on him, or when Paul says that we have peace with God. The peace that Paul is talking about is the kind of peace that we have when a treaty between warring nations is finally signed, and the nations formally at war, they put their swords away and shake hands. That kind of peace is the basis for the emotional peace that every one of those soldiers and leaders feels when he gets to put their swords away and go home to his family. And so it is with the Lord, the peace we have with God emotionally might come and go, but the peace we have with Jesus through his wounds with God doesn't come and go. It's been established by what Jesus did. When I was a boy, when I was a little kid, this, this concept, or a teenager, I was in a Christian tradition where I could find no concept of this, this, this finished work. And, and I'm not trying to pick on my tradition. Um, it, it was just either the way it was taught to me or the way I understood it. But, but there was no concept of the finished work or the, the final piece that came with it. I, I had no concept of lasting 
true reconciliation with God. I had a religious tradition that, that in fact encouraged me to wonder if I was really going to take it seriously, to wonder all the time whether I was at war with God or whether I was at peace with God. I, I understood from my faith tradition uh, that, that if I sinned against God in some serious way, I needed to go to a holy man. I needed to go to a priest in this case. And, and if I died before I got to that confession booth um, to meet that priest, if I got hit by a car with a serious sin in my life that I hadn't confessed to him, I would be eternally damned or I could be eternally damned. At least that's the way I thought of it. But if I got to that priest and he pronounced forgiveness over me, then I was good again until I sinned again in some serious way. And then if I died before I got back to the priest, I would be eternally damned until I went to the priest and then it would and so on and so on and so on. That was how I understood Jesus' death for my sins on the cross. I would see him on the cross each Sunday, and in, in my tradition, they often would have a statue of Jesus hanging from the cross. It was beautiful. It was poetic, and it, 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 you know, I, it was mesmerizing. But, but I would often leave, sit there kind of frustrated, like, how do I get that? Like, how, do, how does that actually get to me? It felt so, so elusive that peace that came from those wounds. But that's not what Jesus is trying to proclaim to the disciples or to us this morning. Hebrews 10, one of my favorite passages about this issue, the finished work of Jesus makes it clear. And, and I just appeal to you all, you should all look at Hebrews 10 and, and all meditate on Hebrews 10. It is, it is such an incredible trumpet call of our victory in Christ. In the middle of Hebrews 10, the author there says this, When Christ had offered, I'm picking up I think here in verse 10, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Did you hear that? When he had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering, he has perfected or made complete for all time those who are being made holy. And again, I want to come back to that word, for by a single offering, he has perfected. It's the same Greek, it's rooted in the same Greek word as when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross. For by a single offering, he has perfected, he has finished for all time the atoning work for those who are being made holy. We're being made holy over time. We're growing in Christ over time, but the finished work of Christ is done. And then he goes on in verse 15 in that same chapter, chapter 10, he says, and the Holy Spirit bears witness to us. Speaking of God, he says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. See, the Hebrews writer is saying, the lamb has been slain. There is no longer any more offering for sin. Therefore, that offering is sufficient for all sin. That's what he's trying to declare. And so Jesus is declaring to the apostles as he walks into their room, peace has come to you because of my wounds. Peace has been accomplished. It is finished because of my wounds. And it's fair to ask, it, if we do have peace with God through the finished once or all sacrifice of Jesus, then, then why are we taught to confess our sins to God in 1 John 1.9? I mean, isn't he just like, it's fine, we're good. Or to confess our sins to each other in James 5.16. And, and I think in one sense... We can understand this if we think about a parent-child relationship. When we sin against our moms or dads or they sin against us, the fundamental fact in a family relationship, the, the fundamental identities of mother-daughter, of father-son, they don't change because we hurt each other. We remain family. But the experience of that relationship changes. It suffers. We live in the same house, but now we're dealing with each other different, coldly. But we're still family. But our experience of familyhood suffers. 
<clears throat> and I think in a similar way, when we sin against our Heavenly Father, He doesn't take away our status as sons and daughters. He doesn't stop being our Father through the work of Jesus Christ. But our experience of being His sons and daughters, our experience of Him being our Father, it is damaged, it is hurt, it is grieved, it is harassed and, and encumbered by our sin. And so when we come to God and we ask for forgiveness or we confess our sins to him, he doesn't re-sacrifice Jesus again or, or, or get him to bleed more for those extra sins. No, the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit works. His job is to make what Jesus already did once and for all real to us again, to bring us our assurance back again so that we remember our peace is with Jesus. To, through our confession, we, 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 it's like Drano. We pour it down the drain and we take out the junk and the dirt that's, that's gotten in between us and God so that his love can flow free, free, freely back into our lives and our love can flow back up to him. The bloodshed for all time is our defense in the past, present, and future. What, what was already true, his blood shed for us, will always be true. But we have to come to God again and again for fresh, for fresh uh, proclamations over our heart of that blood shed for all time over us. And that's part of what confession helps us to do. It's part of what prayer, part of what Bible study helps us to do. But it is always based on the finished once for all time work of Jesus that has brought us peace once for all time that we look back in order to nourish our current sense of peace. Peace. So, so if you come here this morning with a conscience weighed down, with, with sins you're aware of having committed, and, and, and you come here feeling the weight of that guilt, I want to encourage you, confess that as well as you can to God. Agree with him. Say, Lord, that was wrong. But, but I want to encourage you to see then those sins in the wounds of Jesus afresh this morning and not on yourselves. And if you come with a vague sense of guilt, you can't put your finger quite on it. I want to encourage you to look at the wounds in Jesus and say, Lord, what I don't know, you do know. And you proclaim through your wounds peace over my life. What I can't keep track of in terms of my sin debt to you or how well or how poorly I've done, you keep track of and you still proclaim peace in the wounds of Christ. Look at those wounds with eyes of faith. Know that God is satisfied by those wounds for your sins infinitely more than anything you could do or will ever do to atone for your sins yourself. God is satisfied by the wounds of Christ for your sins infinitely more than anything you could do or ever will do to try to atone for them yourself. And of course, I, I think it probably goes without saying for just about everybody here, this is not an invitation to say, well, you know, if, if my peace is established by Jesus, if my, if, if, if I have peace with God through the wounds of Christ, then I can just do whatever I want and it doesn't matter. Of course, in one sense, logically, you could try to sort of mathematically bring that argument to bear. But that would really call into question whether you understand who Jesus is at all, it, whether you understand what sin really is at all, and whether you really truly have a relationship with Jesus at all, I would say. But, but I, I, I think most of us know enough not to go there. And so I just want to come back and say, I think probably for many of us, it's more about saying, Lord, I need to put my hope again afresh in what you've done to accomplish my forgiveness. This is what Thomas Wilcox, uh, uh, an old, I think an old Puritan said about this. I really love this kind of joyful rebuke that comes from Wilcox. He says, do not legalize the gospel as if part remained for you to do or suffer, and Christ were but a half mediator, as if you must bear part of your own sin and make some satisfaction yourself. And then he says, let sin break your heart, but not your hope in the gospel. Let sin break your heart, but not your hope in the good news. So that's our first goal of life, as I see it this morning, to rest in the peace we have with God through Jesus' wounds.
Ta-da! To rest in the peace we have with God through Jesus' wounds. My uh, retro, my retro titles there. Okay, second theme, two number two, so that we might share this peace with one another and the lost. Second goal of our lives, so that we might share this message of peace with one another and the lost. So that we might share this message of peace with one another and the lost. Picking up a little bit past where we went last week with Mary. Jesus said to them again, this is in the middle of verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, there's some really curious questions in this text, but I want to start with something a little bit more simpler. Notice after the peace is offered and the wounds are shown and the fear was erased and all the hearts were made glad, Jesus says a second time, peace be with you. But this time he doesn't show the wounds again. This time he tells them he is sending them forth. Many of you heard of the idea of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is this famous uh, couplet at the end of the book of Matthew where Jesus says, Go into all the world, preach the gospel to all nations, making them disciples and teaching them all I've commanded you, baptizing them in the, name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is kind of John's sort of roundabout way of doing his kind of Great Commission. But, but there's some different facets to it. J- Jesus says, well, and let's slow down here. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Jesus says, he is sending the disciples just as he was sent by the Father. Well, how is Jesus sent by the Father? Think about one of the most famous sending passages you could probably think of in the Gospel of, of John. That's in John 3, the, the, maybe the, what's at least in competition for the most famous Bible passage in, in the universe is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Again, we're thinking about how God sent Jesus, okay? Because Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And now we're looking at this passage earlier in John that talks about how God sent Jesus. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So this is how God sent Jesus. He sent him so that people would believe in Jesus and not perish, but have life. God sent him into the world, not to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And then John goes on to talk more about this sending. He says about this sending of Jesus into the world. Whoever believes in him, that is in Jesus, whom God has sent, whoever believes in him is not judged, meaning he does not come under condemnation for his sins. But then John says, whoever does not believe in Jesus, this is verse 18 of John 3, whoever does not believe has been judged or condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I want you to listen to that carefully because it's going gonna, it's gonna to help us understand something of what Jesus says at the end of our, of our passage today in John 20. Getting a lot of people jumping in here, uh, or a few people. Welcome, guys. We're, <laughs> we're glad to have you. Um, Jesus says, or I'm sorry, John says in John 3 that God sends Jesus into the world so that people might believe in him and not perish, but have eternal life. He says that's exactly why he sent Jesus into the world, that the world might not be judged or condemned, but that they might be forgiven and saved. But then he says, whoever does not believe in Jesus is going to be judged. Their sins remain on them because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In other words, they've not believed in the only means of forgiveness that God has offered. So God sends Jesus to reconcile the world. Whoever believes in this reconciliation from Jesus receives it. They are forgiven of their sins. Whoever does not believe in the message of Jesus does not receive reconciliation with God. They are telling God, I don't need you. 
I don't need your forgiveness, and I don't want Jesus to be my king. And so I think that's exactly what Jesus is asking the apostles to do. As my Father has sent me for these reasons, so I'm sending you for the same reasons. I want you, apostles, to offer the world this message of peace and reconciliation to my Father through my shed blood. And when he says, when Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it's, in hell, it's withheld. I don't think he's talking about establishing penance and confession. I think he's saying, whoever receives this proclamation of forgiveness in my name is reconciled to God. Whoever rejects this proclamation of forgiveness in my name will not be reconciled to God. What Jesus is saying is essentially, hey, church, starting with the disciples first and foremost, certainly, but to all of us, hey, church, I am handing, I'm giving you my peace personally. I'm giving you my forgiveness personally. And now I'm handing to you the mission of proclaiming my gospel, my good news to the world. Whoever receives it has it. Just like because you received it, you have it. Whoever rejects me will not have it. I am trying to speak my message through you, disciples. You're going to proclaim to the world what my death and resurrection have accomplished and the opportunity for everyone to have their sins forgiven through my death and resurrection. If people accept this proclamation, they are forgiven, just like you are forgiven. If they reject it, they're not forgiven. And and right there, folks, I think that's the second part of the mission of our lives, the mission of our church corporately, and, and, and the mission of ourselves one to another. Part of this mission is inward, to, to, to continue to live and to offer to each other this Jesus, to continue to remind one another that, that we belong to Jesus, that we should live in keeping with belonging to Jesus, to proclaim to one another the peace that we have in his wounds, to keep bringing each other to what Jesus has done for us. We need to hear that from one another, to, to keep each other. In the love of Jesus. And then from, from that peace in our own lives, individually and, and as a church family, we are to be a means of proclaiming that to the world around us. And many will not believe that message. Many will not want that message. Some in his church will not continue in that message and show that they were not part of that message to begin with. And that's, that's, that's very hard news that Jesus implies here. There is hard news in the gospel. We all like the idea of God proclaiming reconciliation to the world. Like very few people are going to be like, are you telling me the message of Christianity is that God wants to be reconciled to the world? Like no one's going to be like, that's terrible. You know, it's like, yay, peace, love. I love that idea. We, we love the idea of telling, even though it can be awkward and hard and it can feel nervous of, of saying to someone, you know, I, I want you to know that, that Jesus, God loves you, that Jesus actually wants you to find peace in his wounds for your sins. He doesn't want you to live in condemnation. That's something I think we all want to bring to each other. But but how, raise your hand if, if, if you like the idea of, of considering the stakes involved for those who reject this message. Jesus tells us there is no forgiveness for those who reject me. And, and who wants to think about that? Like the implications of that for our whole world, that whoever rejects Jesus does not stand in relationship of peace with God, but stands in a condemnation. Who wants to believe that, that everyone in the world needs this message? You know, I just think that's the hard news of the gospel, that God did not allow his son to be slaughtered like a lamb on the cross because everyone's fine. You know, God did not send his best friends into the world to be crucified upside down or beheaded or tortured because everyone's fine. He, he sent these men into the world to be willing to die horrible deaths, proclaiming this message of reconciliation because everyone is not fine. Because everyone needs this message and everyone needs the forgiveness of Jesus Christ that he's offering. This, this group of disciples, these 
12 guys in this room, or however many were at that point, I guess 11, soon to be added with Paul and Mary and several Marys and Martha. These people, this little ragtag group is being entrusted with the most important mission there could conceivably be in the universe. There's no reconciliation without Jesus, whether for those who never put their hope in him or for those who, who play the part of disciple for a while in pretense and then finally and fully walk away from him. There's no reconciliation for them. And, and that's the hard news of the gospel. So we have this second goal of our lives to be part of sharing this message of peace with one another, to help each other hang in there with Jesus, keep trusting in Jesus, to help our church family one to another, not give up on Jesus, but then also to proclaim to the lost around us when the Lord offers us opportunity, either through courage in our heart or the, or the opportunity he sets before us, the Lord gives us an opportunity to give a hope, to give an answer for the hope, as Peter says, that lies within us, and to do so with gentleness and respect so that it might be a blessing to those who hear. So that's our second aim, to, to share this message of peace with one another and the lost. And this brings me to my final point this morning of the, 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 the goal of our life in five verses. To do all this by the power of the Holy Spirit. To do all this by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, as you, as you hear Jesus say, peace be with you. Find your peace in my wounds. And you think about how easy it is to forget that. As you, as you hear Jesus say, I want this message proclaimed to the world. And you think about family members and co-workers who need this message and, and how and when and how do you get it to them without being either fearful or offensive, you know, and, and how do I even represent the Lord so that my, my, my words about Jesus actually look like they've, they're reflected in a life that has integrity, that has love. When we, when we all fail in so many ways, we can just ask ourselves, who is adequate for this? God, this is too much, Right. How are we to keep hanging on to our hope in Jesus when it gets hard? When we find ourselves often getting cold to him again, wanting to relegate him again to like a little sphere of our lives and, and give the rest to our pleasures and our anxieties. When, as, as Pam said last week, we want him to be fire insurance to get us into heaven, but we don't really want to have to count the cost and follow him. How are we going to make it? How are we going to make it when this world becomes so attractive with its riches and pleasures that it numbs us to the Lord? Or, or when hurts or offenses because of strife or anxieties because of worry, it starts to lull us into unbelief or, or, or lull us into escapes that never really satisfy but, but can harden our hearts. How are we to keep our own life with him fervent enough after so many failures that we can look at day after day that, that we're fervent enough in our love for Jesus that we're willing and empowered enough to be a voice for one another, much less to hold him out to people who might be hostile to us, people outside our church family that need him, who might be increasingly repulsed by this message of Jesus that's increasingly looked at as a message of religious bigotry in this world. How are we going to stand in the midst of all that? Because wherever you find yourself today or tomorrow, Jesus is saying you are a sent one. You are a sent one. You are sent there to represent Jesus, to be an ambassador for his peace. And for many of us right now, it's our own houses, right? <laughs> We're supposed to be ambassadors of his peace to each other in our own homes. He sends you to your wife to represent him to her. He sends you to your husband to represent him to, represent him to him. He sends you to your kids to represent not yourself, but him, even in your authority over them. He sends you to your workplace, virtual or not, to show them who Jesus is and how you treat your work seriously how you treat them honorably, what answer that you might be asked to give for the hope that lies within you, or why you might not laugh at a certain joke. 
How are we going to rise to these occasions hour by hour, day after day, when we feel it again and again so weak and inadequate? And, and that's where we find Jesus coming right where we need him to come. Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. To see that Jesus shows them his peace. He gives them a mission, a mission, and then he says to them, receive the Holy Spirit, and he breathes on them. He, and that, that word breathe is like pneuma, it's breath. He, he spirits on them, receive the Holy Spirit. So that's the answer. That's the answer to how we're to live for Jesus, how we're to love like Jesus, how we're to hold on to the peace that he's given us in the gospel, even when we fail. It's through the Holy Spirit. It's through the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. He knows you and I cannot do this on our own. He knows it's impossible for you on our own. He knows you and I will struggle and be imperfect. He knows our spirit might be willing, but our flesh is weak. He knows, as James says, we all struggle in many ways. He knows that sin easily entangles. He knows that the road is narrow that leads to life and the gate is wide that leads to destruction. He knows that apart from him, we can do nothing. And so he breathes on us and says, receive the Holy Spirit. He gives his spirit so that despite all that is against you today, you can get back up and represent him. Despite all you may have done wrong yesterday, you can get back up this morning full of him and see you meeting him. A few days before Jesus rose from the dead, he said these beautiful words to his disciples. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And now, on the day he's risen, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus is doing <clears throat> is he is foreshadowing what is going to happen at Pentecost. He is foreshadowing the new hearts he is about to give them the new spirits he's about to give them at Pentecost when he will send the spirit to live in them forever. And he does this symbolically by breathing on them. And I think this is an allusion back to Genesis 2. When God created Adam from the ground, it says that God breathed. It uses the same, a very similar word in Hebrew as the Greek word here, that he breathed spiritual life into Adam. He breathed life into Adam and Adam became a living soul. So now Jesus breathes on these disciples in anticipation of the outpouring of his spirit to make them new living souls. And, and this is how they will go from hiding fearful in, inside a room to being courageous and free messengers of the gospel. This is how the baby church will go from clinging to the world and instead share their lives and their possessions with each other. This is how they will fight to live for Jesus in a world that is not their home anymore. And it's the same thing for us. We live because Jesus lives. We live with him living inside us, leading us, empowering us to be and do what we could never do on our own. It, it was years, um, it was years for me as a Christian before I realized that God was not calling me to live for him in my own strength. He was calling me to, by faith in him, turn to him again and again, holding on to his word, pleading his promises, and find that I would receive his strength from his spirit to do what I could and never could do on my own. And, and this is still a battle for me. I, I forget every day. That, that I have to depend on him again and again, moment by moment. The, the Christian life is an impossible life, whether it's, it's going to Zambia with Mike Christ or fighting to forgive when you're hurt or apologizing when you hurt 
whether it's reconciling with your spouse or child or, or, or saying no at work to doing something unethical or at the possibility of getting fired or, or, or just simply turning from a show you're watching because you need to give your body a rest and go to bed on time instead of abuse the hours of sleep that God's offered you. The Christian life of following Jesus, of dying to ourselves and walking in the newness that he's given us, it's impossible to do on our own. John Owen says it this way so beautifully. He says, the duties God requires of us are not in proportion to the strength we possess in ourselves. Rather, they are proportional to the resources available to us in Christ. We do not have the ability in ourselves to accomplish the least of God's tasks. This is a law of grace. When we recognize it is impossible to perform a duty in our own strength, we will discover the secret of its accomplishment. But alas, this is a secret we often fail to discover. So I want to ask you, just like I need to ask myself again and again, <laughs> do we know this? Do we know that the Christian life is impossible on our own? Have we forgotten? We forget so easily. I forget every day, multiple times through the day. Not just to find peace in his wounds, but to seek and depend on him for his power. And I'm increasingly thinking this is why Paul commanded us to pray without ceasing, that the whole day would be one long God, Godward draw from his strength that we don't have in ourselves to follow him. Just as salvation is a gift that comes by faith, so does his spirit's enabling power. You remember what John <clears throat> tells us that Jesus says on, um, on Hanukkah? This is in John 7. I think it's on Hanukkah, but it's, it's in John 7. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John says, now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has been glorified now. He has been glorified in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to the Father. And he has poured out the Holy Spirit. He has released the Holy Spirit into the world. And now he waits on high to give his Spirit to all who will believe in him. And for those who already believe in him to give additional replenishments of his spirit day by day, hour by hour, moment by hour, moment by moment, as we continue to depend on his strength for that. So that's it. Those are our, our three tasks in life is to rest in his wounds, the finished wounds of Jesus Christ for our sins, to, to bring this message of peace to one another and the lost and to do it all by the power of his Holy Spirit to rest in his wounds, to, being, to bring that message to others, and to do it all by the power of the Holy Spirit, in whom alone can we live for Jesus. So I just want to ask us right now to take some time and go to him in prayer, asking him for refillings and replenishments of his Holy Spirit. And um, Jared and Adair, could you just sing, um, Great Are You, Lord, over us as we do that? And feel free to sing, folks, or feel free to just Ask the Lord in prayer for his help to continue to live for him. Mm -hmm.